The title of the message this morning is simply The Speck and the Log. The Speck and the Log. Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. That is our text for this morning. And our text for this morning, probably as you just let your eyes glance there, is one of the most well-known, but perhaps one of the most misunderstood, misapplied, and misquoted, one of the most abused verses in the entirety of the Bible. This verse here, particularly Matthew 7, uh, verse 1, has frequently been stripped from its contextual limitations and it's been misapplied. I mean, even people that that don't know very much about the Bible are very familiar with Jesus' words, judge not, and they keep it locked, loaded, and ready to fire. A harsh, critical, judgmental spirit, which is what Jesus is getting at here in our text this morning. A harsh, critical, judgmental spirit is endemic to the human condition. It's part and parcel of this Genesis 3 fallen world that we live in. We see it glamorized on the big screen. Judgmentalism, a critical spirit, it's glamorized. It's pervasive in mainstream media as a tactic for discrediting or or demoralizing a person. It's widespread in the workplace and it's plastered all over our social media feeds. You see a critical and a judgmental spirit, it's, it's not absent from the playground. It's not absent from the break room. It's not absent from the play date. It's not absent from the group of neighbors that gather together. And unfortunately, it is not absent from the halls of our church. A harsh, critical spirit, friends, it is not a spiritual gift. If you think that a judgmental spirit is your spiritual gift, then you have a misunderstanding, one of the spiritual gifts, first of all, uh, and what Jesus is clearly communicating to us here in the text, second of all. You know, it's been said, if the devil isn't able to destroy a Christian's witness by making him apathetic, which that's one of the tactics of the evil one, is just to, to, to encourage us to coast along in this world, to be apathetic, just to kind of float like lifeless jellyfish blobs through the world in which we live. If the devil isn't able to destroy a Christian's witness that way, then he will try and do it by making that Christian, him or her, a fanatic, particularly a fanatic about the flaws of others. It's that critical, judgmental spirit. Stories told of a young bachelor who brought a young lady home to meet his parents, and it was a disaster. Maybe some of you can relate. The only words that the young man's mother could seem to find for this young lady were unmercifully critical, frustrated. And at the end of his ropes, a friend offered this young man some advice. The advice being, find someone that is just like your mother. Wondering if this would solve the problem, he searched high and low for a young lady that mirrored his mom. At last, he found a young lady that looked just like his mother, that walked just like his mother, that talked just like his mother, and that even thought just like his mother. This, for sure, is the one, he thought to himself. So he took her home. Not long after, that friend who had offered the vice asked, How is it that your mother sees this young lady? He replied, My mother loves her, but my father can't stand her. It's that critical, judgmental spirit. It's pervasive. It runs deep within each one of us. Friends, each one of us is in the crosshairs this morning. Jesus is not just speaking to the Pharisees in a far-off land, in a far-off time, in a far-off place. He's speaking to you, and he's speaking to me. We are the Pharisee in Matthew chapter 7, 
verses 1 through 5. With that being said, let's turn our attention to our text for this morning. Let me encourage you to stand if you have the ability. This is Matthew recording Jesus' teaching under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and this is what he pens. Judge not, that you not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Brothers and sisters, let me remind you that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our great God stands forever. You may be seated. Three main points on your outline this morning, some sub-points as we travel along. Point number one, if you're taking notes, would encourage you to do so is this, Jesus Jesus, first of all, in verses 1 and 2, puts his finger on or calls out our sinful, judgmental spirit. Jesus calls out. Again, every single one of us is in the crosshairs this morning. And Jesus calls us out for our sinful, judgmental hearts and spirits. Let me draw your attention back to verses 1 and 2 here. Jesus says, judge not, that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you also will be judged. And with the measure that you use it, it will be measured to you. Now, I speak for myself this morning, but as I speak for myself, I know that there is no temptation that has seized me except that which is common to man. But I speak for myself this morning when I say that that Jesus' words here, to not judge anyone, might be perhaps one of the most difficult things in this world to accomplish. Our self-righteous, prideful radar is ever sweeping the landscape to pick up the faintest indication of the faults of others. Oftentimes that radar sweeps so well to pick up the faults of others because we want the radar sweep to avoid us. We want to remain out of the radar. And so we look to the faults and we magnify the faults of others. What does Jesus mean here when he utters these two words, judge not? Again, even those who are unfamiliar with the Bible are very familiar with Jesus' words here. Judge not. What does Jesus mean when he says that? Is he saying that we should never make any judgments at all? I mean, think for a moment what the world would look like if it were void of any kind of judgments. It would be an absolute train wreck, to say the least. I mean, think about the civil arena, the moral arena, the financial arena, the judicial arena, the commercial arena. Every single one of these would absolutely implode if there were no critical judgments being made. The word translated judge, it's the, the Greek verb krino, and it means to separate or to choose, or to decide, or to select, or to determine, or to conclude, or even to think, uh, potentially even to call into question. It has varied shades of meaning, uh, and we have to look at or interpret those varied shades of meaning based on the contextual limitations in which this Greek verb comes to us. When Jesus says, judge not. 
You see, to absolutize Jesus' words that it is never right to judge would be an impossible interpretation of this text because there are a myriad of other texts in the Bible that tell us that we must make judgments. Specifically, believers, we must make judgments. Let's look at a few of those. Just listen here for a moment. You might jot the reference down if you want to go look at them later. Just one verse later, let your eyes glance to Matthew chapter 7, verse 6. We'll be here in a few weeks. Jesus tells us not to give to dogs what is holy and not to throw our pearls before pigs or swine lest they trample them underfoot in turn and attack you. A judgment has to be made there. A decision has to be made there. A selection has to be made there. A distinction has to be made there. Just a handful of verses later in Matthew 7, 15 and 16, Jesus tells us to be, to be aware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. You've got to make a distinction there. You've got to have some sort of radar up there so that you can separate, you can make a, 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 a judgment about what is a false teacher from what is a true teacher, what is false teaching from what is true teaching. Matthew 23, Jesus goes uh, off, so to speak, in holy anger against the hypocrites. And he pronounces, woe to you, you hypocrites. Woe to you, you blind guides. Jesus is making some judgments there. John 7, 24, judge, uh, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. And there is a call, a, a specific call to make judgments there. 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. Exercise discernment, wisdom, judgment. to See whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is just a, a smidge, so to speak, of the New Testament texts that give us some indication that we are not to turn off our discernment. That Jesus cannot be making an absolute statement that no judgment is ever to be made in the end of sentence period. That's not what Jesus is saying here in the text. These verses make it clear that we as Christians, those verses that I just shared with you, make it clear that we as Christians have an obligation even to exercise judgment. We're to use sound judgment in matters of truth. Matter of fact, the entire Sermon on the Mount was preached to show the complete distinction between the true religion and false religion. Between the, the saving message of the gospel and that man-made false religion of the Pharisees. Between spiritual truth and spiritual hypocrisy. That's why Jesus preaches the message. Jesus places God's perfect and holy standards right, right beside unholy and self-righteous standards in the Sermon on the Mount to show us the distinction, to make a judgment, to pronounce or to render a judgment. Matter of fact, no more controversial or judgmental sermon has ever been preached than what came off of Jesus' lips here in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Think about the truth that you hear preached. Every single message that you hear from this pulpit or any other pulpit, brothers and sisters, must be judged for the soundness of its doctrine. Are you thinking that every Sunday as you're listening to God's Word be communicated? I hope so. I hope that you have a filter in there. And that filter is set up by the Word of God. And that as you're hearing the word preached, you are filtering it through the word of God. 
Yes, that's true. Yes, that's right. Yes, that's godly. Yes, that's correct. Oh, wait a second. I have a question about that. Everything you hear from this pulpit or any other pulpit, friends, it needs to be judged for its soundness of doctrine. Paul told the Galatians, but if even we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preached to you, let him be accursed. Judgment must take place there. Distinction must be made there. Similarly, John writes, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, the biblical teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. When Jesus says judge not, he's not telling us to turn off our discernment, friends. Although that's the world in which we live, right? The, the moment that you, that you press in on, a, on an issue of morality, locked, loaded, and ready to be fired, is don't judge me, or only God can judge me. When Jesus says judge not, he's not telling us to turn off our discernment. Rather, he is condemning the pull of our sinful hearts toward a critical and intentional fault-finding spirit. Jesus is referring to the judgment of motives here, which no mere human being can do. No mere human being can know the motives, can know what's going on in the heart of another man or another woman. As a matter of fact, God says of himself through the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah 17, 10, I, the Lord, interpretation, not you, not me, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give to every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. What Jesus is telling us here in Matthew 7, 1 is don't park in God's parking space. God alone knows the hearts of all men. We are not to judge motives. We're not to judge the intentions of men. We're not to have that critical, intentional fault-finding, not giving the benefit of the doubt spirit. Jesus is putting his finger on our propensity to blame others for trifling offenses or matters of indifference while passing harsh and hasty judgments upon them. And then at the same time, excusing our own infirmities. You see, that radar is ever sweeping. And it's always looking for the blip of someone else's faults. But when it comes to our own faults, we are so quick to let ourselves off the hook. We're so quick to be merciful and gracious when it comes to our own sin and our own faults and our own failures. As believers, 1 Corinthians 13, we should believe all things, right? We should hope all things and we should be very slow to find or to assign fault. In other words, we of all people, because of the incalculable grace that has been shown to us, should be very, very quick to give the benefit of the doubt to others and to assume the best in others. That is not what is natural to our flesh, though. Our natural inclination is to assume the worst. Our natural inclination is to meddle in and judge the motives of another man or another woman's hearts that we cannot see. And we usually assign it the worst probable outcome. But when it comes to us, we're very quick to give ourselves the pass out. There's a major difference between being discerningly critical 
and being hypercritical. That's what Jesus is pressing in on here in our text, is that, that, that pull of our hearts to be hypercritical. There's a major difference between exercising sound discernment and being judgmental. That's what Jesus is pressing in on here in the text, that critical, judgmental heart and spirit. Let's look uh, at the portrait of a hypercritical person here for just a moment. And I think if you allow yourself, if you're honest with yourself, you will see in this portrait a painting of yourself. I know that I see a painting of myself here. Here is the portrait of a hypercritical, fault-finding person. Number one is this. We, we search for faults in others. We search for faults in others. We look for them. James Montgomery Boyce notes this. He says, does such criticism arise because there's a profound grief over sin? No, oftentimes when we see uh, the faults of others, we're not grieved by sin. We're just happy they failed. Because in some sick and twisted way, it makes us feel better about ourselves. Jeremiah 17, 9, if we knew how wickedly sick our hearts really were, we would be dismayed, appalled. I mean, it is an act of God's grace that he in small increments pulls back the comforter of our hearts and lets us see it in small portions because if he were to rip the veil off all at once and we were to see the man that we really were and we were to see the woman that we really were, we'd be ruined, undone. So much of our of our criticism of others, so much of our fault-finding of others isn't because of a profound grief that, that God, God has been offended, that sin has been committed. And so in some sick, twisted way, we actually search for and look for faults in others because it makes us feel better about ourselves. Secondly, the portrait of a hypercritical person is that we freely talk about the faults of others. Call this gossip. We freely talk about the faults of others. Remember, that's what takes place around the break room table. That's what takes place at the neighborhood meeting. That's what takes place at the play date. That's what takes place in the halls of the church, is we talk. We freely talk about the faults of others. Proverbs 18, verse 8 says, The words of a whisperer, they're like delicious morsels. They go down to the inner parts of the body. They're tasty, but they're poisonous. We freely talk about the faults of others. You see yourself here yet? If you're honest, you probably do. Third, we focus on things that are of little importance and we inflate them. In other words, we treat uh, matters of minor importance to be as matters of vital importance. We focus on things that are small, and we treat them as things that are enormously large. And then fourth, we feel a sense of satisfaction at the faults of others. We search for faults in others. We freely talk about the faults of others. We gossip. We slander. We focus on things that are minor, and we inflate them. And then we, in some sick, twisted way, feel a sense of satisfaction at the faults of others. Friends, let me remind you Paul's words in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, for we must all appear 
before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what has been done in the body, whether good or evil. When you are tempted to be critical and judgmental of another person, just remember that you will one day stand toe-to-toe before the maker of the universe. The very one of whom the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 14 writes this, that we are all laid naked and exposed before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. He sees everything. He knows everything. Even when we don't judge someone or even when we're not critical of someone verbally, but we do it in our hearts, he sees it. And we need to remember that each one of us will one day stand before him and have to give an account. Now in Christ, we don't fear condemnation, but we will still have to give an account for every idle action, for every idle word, for every judgmental or critical word, look, glance, or thought that we have harbored in our hearts against another. Friends, judgment is dangerous in that critical sense, in that intentional fault-finding sense, because it's God's job, and also because it invites judgment on you and on me. When we judge another person, we send an invitation to Yahweh to judge us. Look at the text. Look at what the text says there. Judge not that you may not be judged. For with the judgment that you pronounce, you also will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will also be measured to you. Every time we have a critical, judgmental, fault-finding heart and spirit towards another person, we send an invitation that God might judge us. You see, while it's possible to interpret the phrase, you will be judged here in verse 1, as pointing to the judgment of others, the judgment that others will pass on us when we're judgmental. In other words, that we'll get labeled as a judgmental person. But what other people do and what other people think, that's not our criteria. And in the end, it doesn't even really matter much. What matters the most is the judgment of God. You see, Jesus' words here, and you will be judged, that surely refers to the tribunal to to the divine tribunal. In other words, to be quick to call others to account is to invite God to call us to account. You see, what Jesus is doing here in these words is he's reminding us that you and I are not the final court. He's reminding us that to judge another person's motives is actually to try to play God. Remember Jeremiah 17, I am the Lord God. I know the hearts of all men. And so when we judge another individual, when, when, when we meddle in their motives, we're trying to play the role of God. Jesus isn't calling for his followers to cease to be examining and discerning again, but rather to renounce the presumptuous temptation to try to be God by assessing the motives of others. You see, elbowing in on God's territory as judge, it's a precarious venture, friends. Why, you ask? Because if we pose as judges, we cannot plead ignorance to the very law that we claim to be able to administer to others. If we enjoy occupying the bench, we should not be surprised when we find ourselves on the dock. Romans chapter 2, Paul says this, he says, You have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. He's speaking to you and to me here, by the way. We have no excuse, 
Every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you actually condemn yourselves, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Oftentimes tell people in counseling settings in my office, the only thing that is different from you and I is what side of the table we're sitting on. I'm more like you than I am dislike you. We're more similar than we are dissimilar. It's an old poem written by an unknown author. Pinned these words, Do not be too hard on the person who sins. For the yardstick you lay on another may someday be used as a measure for you. O be gracious and judge not, my brother. See, brothers and sisters, we need to face and apply Jesus' words here with all their weight and with all their force. Because I would propose to you that there is very little that is more unchristlike than a critical, judgmental self-righteousness that is always looking for something wrong in others, but sees not, is blind to its own wrong. It's blinded to its own sin. Jesus calls out our judgmental spirit. Every single one of us is guilty. Number two. Jesus calls out our sinful, hypocritical spirit. Jesus calls out, or he puts his finger on, our sinful, hypocritical spirit. Let me draw your attention to verses 3 and 4. Jesus says, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your own eye when there is yet a log in your own eye? I mean, the illustration that Jesus uses here is almost comical, my friends. Jesus oftentimes, he was a master teacher, and he oftentimes taught using hyperbole or exaggeration to make a point. That's exactly what he's doing right here in verses 3 and 4. He's exaggerating to make a point, to drive a point home. Similarly, when Jesus said or spoke about the camel passing through the eye of a needle, well, that's comical. It's almost ludicrous or swallowing a camel in Matthew 23. But Jesus uses that exaggeration, that humor, even in his teaching, to drive home a very forceful point. I mean, you can almost picture a man here with a two-by-four or with a railroad tie stuck in his eye trying to remove a speck of sawdust or a splinter from another man's eye. It's almost comical to think about. As ludicrous as it sounds, though, it's a caricature of each and every one of us. We ought to be careful if we laugh, if we laugh lest we laugh at ourselves. All of us are masters of speckology. What's your degree in? I can tell you that we all have a masters of speckology. And we all suffer from a condition known as logitis. Okay? If speckology were listed in a university catalog, the course description might read something like this. The identifying and criticizing of small shortcomings in the lives of everyone around you. Very popular course, fills early. Likewise, we all struggle with the condition known as logitis. And if logitis were to appear in a medical dictionary, it might be identified this way. A disease that distorts your own self-perception and renders an individual incapable of recognizing their own personal faults occurs worldwide. 
We're masters of specology, and we all suffer from a condition known as logitis. Sounds funny, but you won't forget it this afternoon. The word translated speck here in verses 3 and 4. It's the Greek noun karphos. It can be translated twig or straw or splinter or sawdust. As a matter of fact, it can really be used to describe any small piece of anything. It's a word that points to something that is quite insignificant. Jesus pictures a person who fixes his or her gaze on something quite small and unimportant in someone else, but fails to notice what is much more significant in his or her own eye. This is where the log comes into play. You see, the log, it's a, it's a considerable piece of timber. Matter of fact, the, the Greek noun there carries the idea of a beam that would be laid across the floor or that would be uh, securing a ceiling of a structure. And so what Jesus does here in verses 3 and 4 is he uses hyperbole to demolish the position of the critic. He says, why do you focus on the splinter? Why is your radar so keen? And why does it so quickly pick up the little blip, the splinter in your brother or your sister's eye, when you don't realize what's hanging out of your own? The point that Jesus is making here is that if we don't honestly deal with our own sinful hearts, If we don't come before him and confess our own sinful hearts to him, then we blind ourselves to our own condition, and therefore we cannot see clearly enough to help a brother or a sister deal with the foreign object that's in their eye. Now, let me make a a distinction here that needs to be made. Any foreign object that is in the eye, even if it is a splinter, needs to be dealt with. Maybe you've had a foreign object in your eye before. It can be incredibly painful. As a matter of fact, you can stand before the mirror for hours trying to find what it is that has become embedded in your eye to no avail. And so you've got to go to a doctor so that they can put a a magnifying glass, so to speak, over your eye and see what it is that's causing such great pain. To see what a small foreign object it is that is causing such distress. But if we don't have an accurate assessment of ourselves... Before we try to confront someone else, before we try to help a brother or a sister deal with their sin, which needs to be dealt with, okay, any foreign object in anyone's eye, for the sake of God's glory and for the sake of our holiness, needs to be dealt with. What Jesus is going to communicate here is how you deal with it. How you deal with it. And we need to have a first or first have an accurate assessment of ourselves so that we're not tempted to downplay our own brokenness and magnify the brokenness of another. You see, that's our fatal tendency, is it not? We have a fatal tendency to exaggerate the flaws and the faults of others while minimizing the gravity of our own. We seem to be able to see the sin of others with exacting clarity, but we suffer from spiritual myopia, nearsightedness, when it comes to seeing the sinfulness of our own hearts. We find it easy to turn a microscope on another person's sin while we look through the wrong end of a telescope at our own sin. You ever turn a telescope around backwards? We apply a strict and exacting standard on others, but we're quick to evaluate our own lives by a much less stringent and rigid law. We have a very rosy view of ourselves, but we have a very jaundiced view of others. You see, the wretched and the gross sin 
that is always blind to its own sinfulness is the sin of self-righteousness. That's the key word, by the way. You want to write that in the margin of your Bible. If you want to write that in your notes, that's, that's the operative term for these five verses is self-righteousness. And it's wretched and it's gross and it blinds us. It blinds us to seeing the malady of our own condition. Almost by definition, self-righteousness is a sin of blindness, blindness or of grossly distorted vision. Because it looks at its own uh, sin and it still imagines that it only sees righteousness there. I mean, again, that is how wicked our human hearts are. That we can look at our own sin and because of our self-righteousness, we can imagine that all we see is righteousness there. Here's another little poem for you. It was written some time ago. captures the flaw of our self-righteous hypocrisy. Track with me here. A little seed lay in the ground and soon began to sprout. Now which of all the flowers around shall I, it mused, come out? Thinking about which, which flower should I be? How beautiful should I be? This little seed could almost be heard saying, I don't care to be a rose, it has thorns. I don't desire to be a lily, it's too colorless. And I certainly wouldn't want to be a violet, it's too small and it grows too close to the ground. Then the poem concludes and says this, And so it, the little seed, criticized each flower, that prideful little seed, until it woke one summer hour and found itself a weed. See? Self-righteousness looks at our own malady. And because self-righteousness is a sin of blindness, all it sees there is righteousness. The very nature of self-righteousness is to justify self and to condemn others. We see this in David's response to Nathan when he confronted David about his sin of adultery and murder, right? Turn over in your Bible for just a second. Actually, yeah, do. 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 12. I want you to see another portrait of self here. I'm certainly here in 2 Samuel 12, 1 through 7. Probably a familiar text to many of you. It says this, And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd and prepare it for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. Judgment, critical, motives, assigning motives. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And then here's the picture of you and me, friends. 
And Nathan said to David, you are that man. You are that man. You are the hypercritical person. You are the hypocritical person. You are the judgmental person. So am I. Do you notice this little phrase here? In verse 3, Jesus says, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice? Maybe you'll underline that word or circle that. Do you not notice the log that is in your own eye? You see, the term notice conveys the idea of sober and continuous meditation. In other words, Jesus is in effect saying, stop and think about your own sin. Part of the problem is that you failed to notice. You did not take into account. Take notice. And when you take notice, know this. The truth is usually worse than you know. So even when you take inventory, even when you take notice, know that the truth is worse than what you even know. Until you and I have done that, we're in no position to confront someone else about their shortcomings. And this brings us to our final major point on our outline this morning. Number three is this. We must, 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 must examine ourselves before examining others. When Jesus says, judge not, Verse 1, he doesn't mean that it is wrong under any circumstances to pass an unfavorable judgment on the actions or the opinions of others. Again, to press that meaning into the text would be to translate the text in an erroneous way. Neither does Jesus mean that it's wrong to reprove the sins or the faults of others until we ourselves are faultless, because we know that that won't take place until we stand before the Lord in glory. And there are plenty of New Testament texts that talk about how we are to deal with a brother or sister who is caught in sin. Galatians 6.1, if your brother or your sister is caught in sin, you who are spiritual should restore such a one, yet do so with the spirit of what? Humility or gentleness. The fact that, critical, that a critical judgmental spirit is forbidden does not relieve us of our brotherly or sisterly responsibilities to one another. As a matter of fact, just 13 chapters later, Jesus will tell you and me, if your brother sins, if your sister sins, go and tell him or his fault alone. So there is, there's, there's, there's a myriad of precedent in the New Testament about going and helping our brother or our sister. And so we know that Jesus' command to judge not does not prohibit us from any circumstances on passing judgment and unfavorable judgment on the actions or opinions of others. But what it does prohibit is that hypercritical. And that line, friends, can sometimes be very, very thin and blurry. Especially when you, when you stir into the mix the propensity of our sinful Jeremiah 17.9 hearts. To see sin in a brother or a sister and to refuse to say anything about it is not loving. As a matter of fact, it's hatred. To see sin in the life of a brother or a sister and to turn a blind eye to it, that's not loving. Just as a physician who knows that a patient has an illness or a disease, 
but refuses to communicate that information to the patient, that is not loving. That is not a good physician. Moses in Leviticus chapter 19 says, You shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor. You see the connection there? To not reprove is to hate your neighbor. It's not loving. It's not loving if our brother or sister is in sin and we refuse to say anything about it. A person who doesn't warn his friend about sin cannot claim to love his or her brother or sister. But this takes, and here's, here's where we get into some distinction here, this takes incredible humility. This takes incredible sensitivity and it takes incredible spiritual maturity. Humility, sensitivity, and spiritual maturity. And Jesus tells us first. First is the priorities word, right? He says first. This is the, the helpers. First priority is to first remove the obstacle to clear-sightedness from his own or her own eye. And with that done, he or she is now equipped to bring aid to his brother or his sister. Does it mean you have to be sinlessly perfect? No, it doesn't. We know that's not the case here in this Genesis 3 fallen world. But it does mean that we should do a whole lot of self-judging, that we ought to be a critic of self before we ever launch out and try to help our brother or our sister deal with the sin that they're dealing with. Write this down if you're taking notes. I call this spec work. Thinking about helping your brother or your sister deal with sin. We call this spec work. Spec work requires self-examination. Number one there. It requires self-examination. Be quick to judge yourself, but be slow Be slow to judge others because the fault that you see in others may just be a reflection of your own. Be quick to be a critic of self and to judge self because the fault and the sin you see in others may just be a reflection of your own. Spec work requires great self-examination. Secondly, it requires great humility. When you see yourself for who you are, And when I see myself or who I really am, and when we stand before the heinousness of our own sinful self-righteousness, when we have a keen awareness of the mercy and the grace that has been shown to us at the cross, when we have a deep-seated humility, when we understand that we alone are the chief of sinners, then and only then are, are we in a right position to go help our brother or our sister that is dealing with sin. When we understand that I myself am the chief of sinners, Because if I don't understand that I myself am the chief of sinners, guess who I think is the chief of sinners? You. Jesus doesn't want us to have an indifferent attitude toward the sin in our brothers and sisters' lives, but he does want us to see their speck through clear, self-judged eyes. And then speck work requires tenderness. It requires self-examination, humility, and tenderness. Proverbs 12, 18 says, There is one whose rash words are like a sword's thrust, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Spec work requires tenderness. Not in concealing truth, but in how you use the sword. 
Let me give you some good evaluation questions. We'll land the plane here this morning. Some good spec work evaluation questions. You, you see a, a splinter. You see a speck. You see a small piece of hay or a twig in your brother or your sister's eye. And to the best of your knowledge, you, you are seeing that through, through a set of clear, self-judged eyes. In other words, you've already been critical of self. You see yourself as being the chief of all sinners. You see yourself as being in grave need of God's mercy and His grace. You see yourself as being without hope apart from the cross. Now you're in a humble state, in a humble position to approach your brother or your sister. Here's some good evaluation questions for you. Number one. Is my motive, is my motive to help or to hurt? It's a good question to ask. Is my motive to help or to hurt? Paul reminds us in Ephesians 4.15 that we're to speak the truth in love. John Chrysostom, one of the early church fathers, said this, correct him or correct her, speaking about your brother or your sister, but not as a foe, Not as an adversary exacting a penalty, but as a physician providing medicine, even more a loving brother anxious to rescue and restore. Is your motive to help or to hurt? B, do you have all your facts straight? Do you even have a full-orbed understanding of the situation with which to communicate anything that might be helpful in the first place? So often we are, are, are quick to speak, right? Do I have all my facts straight? C, can love cover this? Can love cover this? A lot of times we are critical and judgmental over issues that aren't even sinful to begin with. They're issues of preference. Just because you're not like me, or you don't do things the way I do them, you don't parent the way I parent, you don't study the word I study the way I study the word. Maybe you don't study the word as much as I study the word. You don't tithe like you should. You let your kids dress that way? I mean, come on, what kind of parent does that? Some of those issues could, could slide into sinful issues pretty quickly, but oftentimes we judge individuals for, for issues or areas that aren't even sinful in the first place. They're mere issues or areas or arenas of preference. You're just not like me. Get on board. Can love cover this difference? Next, have I checked my own life? This is that self-evaluation here. Next, am I prepared to grant forgiveness and assistance? Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ has forgiven you, Ephesians 4.32. Are you prepared to grant forgiveness and assistance? Or are you just prepared to toss the piano on someone and tell them how wretched a sinner they are? And then lastly, am I using God's methods to admonish? Am I using God's methods? There are a lot of methods out there to help a person deal with sin, right? Some of them are less than helpful. Let me direct your attention back to Matthew chapter 18, 15, and the following, right? If your brother sins or your sister sins, go to them and go alone first. If that doesn't work, then take a brother or a sister with you that the charge may be established by three witnesses. If that doesn't work, then you bring a larger circle of individuals around. Are you, are you using God's methods to admonish? Or are you using your own methods? Friends, we need to have the right balance here. The right balance of humility and helpfulness. 
And I think that right balance of humility and helpfulness is reflected in Psalm 51. I mean, David prays this first, right? Created me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Rejoice me, the, the, restore to me the joy of my salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. That's humility, right? Know me, God. Search me, God. Throw the spotlight, the floodlight on me, God. See if there's any grievous way in me. That's the humility, right? And then, and then in Psalm 51, David gets to the helpfulness when he says, and then I will teach transgressors thy ways and sinners will be converted to thee. Search me and know me first. Humility and then helpfulness. You see, the procedure for removing a speck from an eye, it's very delicate. There's nothing in the human body more sensitive, perhaps, than the eye. The instant we touch it, it flinches, it closes up. What's required in clearing an eye is gentleness and carefulness and patience and sympathy for the other person. Do we just sit idly by and say nothing? No, we don't. But we need to make sure that we have a humble assessment of ourselves before we go. You see, in the spiritual realm, the care is even more delicate because we're not just dealing with an eye, we're dealing with a soul. And so we must be humble and sympathetic and or conscious of our own sins, going without condemnation. Remember, Paul told the Galatians, Galatians 6, 1. We'll close here this morning. If your brother is caught in sin, you who are spiritual, go. We have an obligation to go. That's not a suggestion, by the way. It's an obligation to go. But do so with a spirit of humility. Do so with a gentle, tender, kind disposition. One that has a clear assessment of itself. Friends, do you see yourself clearly? You see the log, the railroad tie, the plank, the floor joist, the ceiling joist hanging out of your own eye? I hope so this morning. Each one of us are right here in the crosshairs, and Jesus is calling us out. He's calling us out for our critical, judgmental spirit. He's calling us out for our hypocritical spirit, and he's calling us to examine ourselves before we meddle in examining the hearts and the motives and the intentions and the actions of others.